Hello and welcome to the Caring Instinct podcast, understanding our children and ourselves. And today, Joe and I wanted, well, initially I thought we would talk about rewards and punishments in learning, how they work, where they don't work. But then I thought, really, the bigger question is what motivates children to learn? Hi, Joe. Hello, how are you doing? Yes, good, thank you. I've got a story that my friend shared uh, with me. Go on. It is um, her seven-year-old son who loves reading. He's a fluent reader. He loves big books and all. And at the end of um, last year at school, at the end of the year, the library launched a reading challenge, our local library. And naturally, the parents thought, he reads so well, so we'll send him up for the challenge. And the challenge is you go to the library, you pick several books a week, you, you tell the library how many you've read, you get a sticker every week. At the end, in September, there's a ceremony and a certificate and all that. So I think there was kind of some hiccup, like he was reading more than the library could record, could give him stickers for. And very soon, he abandoned the whole thing. He's like, I don't want to do the challenge anymore. I'll just be reading for fun. So... Mom and dad still took him to the ceremony, but he was very reluctant. Reluctant to go? Reluctant to go, not reluctant to read. Yeah. What's your reaction to this? My first reaction is that these things, rewards, uh, kind of external motivation, they just muddle everything up. It creates like a distance for me, a distance between what the, our actual aims are. I mean, the aims for everyone here are a boy to uh, enjoy reading and to help him to improve a bit with his reading or to find mastery or to, that might be one of them, or just to explore different books or it could be lots of different, but essentially just to to read more to, and to enjoy it. Now he's already got that. What happens with the rewards? What I notice is that we become, we get invested in it then. So all of a sudden we have a role in it. So when it doesn't work, there's more opportunity for it to bring our own stuff to what happened, our own frustration for it not working, our own, um, yeah, it's working. And it makes it more about us than about the actual um, reading itself is one thing that I notice. Um, it can backfire as well. It can, um, it doesn't sound like it backfired, uh, in terms no, of the reading of this, but he still likes reading. Dropped it, yeah. So it didn't, it didn't really affect him, but for some, it can really just put you off of the whole thing, especially if those rewards are, are everywhere. It can, it can ruin the, the joy of, of doing something because it's, it's part of this, you know, working for attention, working for reward, working for love, whatever, however the rewards might be sold. And at the same time, some kids really just, they're really into that work. 
so they would take responsibility so they have but they need that those rewards so much that they just go for it and it looks great you know the the reading comes along as well but the what we don't see is that they're what i'd be curious about is why are they so engaged in that work themselves and what must it like for a be for a child to have to, to work so hard to be yes exactly to be hungry mm -hmm. for them there must be so there's not the for me the idea of parenting looking after it is not to keep them hungry for that stuff it's to feed them to satiate them yeah so that they're there and if they're there you know that love for reading will just come i never used to like reading by the way you i didn't. only found it when i was i don't know 20s there was an odd few, a few books i remember that i liked like I like the Roald Dahl books. I think there was an author, Paul Jennings. I like every now and then I did a found book. Generally, no, I, was, I would not get it. I only found it once formal learning finished for me and then I could find it myself. I did English at university and I remember that the graduation was for me, goodness, finally I can read for fun. Not the lists because at school we had lists like some, some of the stuff I was into. And not a criticism of the library at all, because it's one of the last truly public services that offers this abundance for children. Just go in and pick a book. It's free. There's no pressure. But then at the same time, uh, we're looking at the wobbling literacy rates and teachers are getting worried, educators are getting worried. And when we don't know what to do and we have a little bit of a budget, what do we do? We put in programs that are all reward-based. Yeah, and it probably is the quickest way to get statistics faster to show that more people are reading or... All programs uh, are reward-based. And, yeah, and literacy levels are still pretty poor. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Every, it mm -hmm. works, but it doesn't work. Until it doesn't. Until oh, it does at the same time, I find. You get the statistics to prove it's work, but then the next year, yeah. what do they have to do? Well, they have to do the same thing because it doesn't work in the long term. So, yeah, and it's like a cycle. And then we, there you have this kid that you mentioned who just loves reading. And anyway, he just enjoys reading. And then it's um, actually dangerous go to go in there with rewards because it compromises. He reads, it's its own reward. He reads for fun. He reads for reading, yeah? He reads to read. Yeah, exactly. You find that intrinsic uh, motivation to do it. And then th so much more is happening in that space than if it's coming from the outside. Then when there's suddenly an agenda, like you say, yeah, someone else's. Yeah. Yeah, even the most well-meaning. When I was training as a teacher, as an English teacher, all my training was reward-based. We had regular workshops with professional development and it was all how to create the system which teacher had a better system of like stickers do you collect so many stickers like earn so many stickers that at the end of the lesson you get a bigger sticker do you start with smiley faces non-smiling faces how many of those a child can earn and all that and i used to do it at the beginning, I remember the, my class, they were about uh, six, seven-year-olds. And that's when I saw that not only wasn't it working, it was ruining my class. Yeah. They were so hungry for those rewards. It was scary. They would do anything for those stickers. Friendships fell apart. 
because they wanted always to compete to get to the stickers. Motivation went out of the window and, you know, hard work, deep work went out of the window. They were not sitting there paying attention. They were rushing through their texts, through their exercises to be the first to get to that sticker, uh, to get the reward. There was no deep focus. And the thing that was my final wake-up call, I should say the person who was my uh, wake-up call was this little girl. She was academically a really strong student. She was really good. So she could have aced all those competitions, races, stickers, whatnot, and she didn't want to. She's like, mm, I don't like competition. It was probably too stressful for her, too loud for her, too just unnecessary. It was shoehorning her into something she didn't want to be and good for her. Mm. And that was my wake-up call, potentially because I was always a very good student, but I went for the rewards and she didn't. And I really, for the first time, really saw that and respected that. And I started getting interested in Maria Montessori's ideas because she was this amazing educator who started with observing children, really deeply observing for years. And what she observed, she called the absorbent mind, the child who is learning by themselves without any rewards. And the rewards and punishments are ruining this motivation, well, at least interfering, if not ruining the child who is born to learn will still sort of fight back despite that extra agenda and still learn on their own. But it really messes it up. And another thing she said about rewards and punishments, you're going to love it, teachers need rewards and punishments if the curriculum they're teaching is completely unnatural and has nothing to do with what the child is prepared to learn at this stage. This is when you go for your rewards and punishments. Yeah. And it, what I noticed with it is like, um, I got this from somewhere. I can't remember where. I think it might have been Peter Gray. Someone talked about uh, if, if take walking, for example. And if we were to start engaging with like walking is something to be learned, like uh, like reading is and sort of like academic. And OK, so the way to to help move that along quickly, because we want people walking earlier, because the earlier you walk, maybe the stronger you are you know these types of things so okay we're going to reward uh early walkers with maybe we'll break it down the different parts of walking and stickers out when we notice you've done something to do with walking you know a child has stood up or we're going to start to well really we're just going to start getting confused into the whole we're just going to muddle everything up and it's going to what would happen is there'll be people start to there'll be kids that start to struggle to walk there'll be kids that start to resist it more we'll start to see more uh problems some some kids will really want to start walking early for the for the results someone but it just it kind of jams the natural unfolding of of what it would look like if it just you know walking just is something you learn naturally which is of course what happened i th that's an interesting way to look at it i think Oh, yeah, Peter Gray, because he argues that these early academics uh, correlate with the abundance of early diagnosis Yeah. in terms of special needs, because we expect everyone to be acquiring those literacy skills 
really early, like four, five, six reception is already full of early literacy. Yeah, and I personally believe a part of part not all of it, but a part of that is our own frustration or our own interaction with how it's things like the reward systems are working for us. You know, it's not working. Maybe we can't see it as teachers. So there must be a problem with these children because you know I've got the best stickers. Here. You know, people love exactly. these. You know, what else work. can I do? But, you know, what else? I'll do. do I'll try a different one must be something wrong with the child here it couldn't be uh, other things like um the story i think it was a boy who just was a bit resi- resistant to engaging in competition was fine with, with where they are reading they just didn't need to and fair enough to resist that good for him yeah so i got poisoned at that point uh by the ideas of maria montessori yeah. and i changed poison <laughs> Uh, and I changed that that class. I completely changed things there. And thanks to the school, I had the freedom to do that. But I created on my very uh, small uh, scale as an English classroom, I created workstations because a Montessori classroom is all about, you know, zones, maths, reading, uh, what you call cosmos, like the, the bigger world yeah. the nature and all that practical living the english reception classroom is very much based on the montessori classroom i can see that with one very significant difference in that the montessori in the montessori classroom the idea is, is that the child moves freely and can pick whatever they work on there's no curriculum the curriculum is in the child the child is the their own curriculum and of course, um, unfortunately, our reception children do not have that freedom. But I created workstations. So I would take just one unit out of a textbook and divide it into bits that the child could, just this little bit of autonomy, could could choose which exercise to do first rather than me telling them, you know, and how to work and who to work with, which other child to work with. And I completely went cold turkey on rewards and uh, punishments. Well, there weren't many punishments to start with, but on the rewards in this case. And you'd think it would it would fall apart because it was all holding on to the rewards. But no, they goodness, they recovered their intrinsic motivation so fast, and they we could they could just breathe. There was so much less or no competition, shouting, conflict, or this this really high energy that there was suddenly focus, work, cooperation with other children. So it worked really well. And then I went next year, went to work at an actual Montessori school because I was so fascinated by it. I wonder if this if this um, echoes your experience with the Sudbury school. Yeah, it's um, what came up for me there is the, the children you're talking about are, are like reception aged, right? Yeah, well, no, a little older, like seven. A little older, yeah. So they're quite young still. So they, but they, they, they refound that intrinsic motivation a bit quicker. Yeah. What notice with schools like Sudbury School, which is for listeners, is um, uh, a setting where children will self-direct what they do with their time. So there's no nothing that they have to do. They'll everything's about intrinsic motivation. And um, uh, when you come in there from a from a mainstream school. 
sometimes the older you are, the harder it is to find that. It can take a long time to to get that back. There's there's some rebellion going on still. There's just space and stuff like that. So it can be that children just sit there and don't do much for a long period of time. And you can get a bit, oh, I wonder what they're not doing anything. But it does, it starts to unfold, unfold after time. It's almost like the older you are before you you do something that the harder it is to to find and i think there's a lot of mainstream school uh children and uh, you know you go to you might go to college you might go to university you get to you might start a job straight away and all of a sudden that and you ask them what, what do you want to do and a lot of a lot of people say i don't know what i want to do they have no they've lost that intrinsic motivation that connection to themselves completely that connection to themselves and it's so hard for us conditioned in rewards and punishments to hold that pause yeah the other thing i'd say about rewards and punishment is it sometimes it just works superficially but it only works superficially for it never works for the kids we really want it to work for like for instance uh reading we want let's say we want more children to read so we have the um, rewards and punishment. Well, you'll see more reading in some people superficially because they're engaged in that uh, that work of of finding rewards. But for some kids, they just don't. They're just not going to engage in it. Quite often, there are the kids that the hub programs were designed for in the first place. So, another yeah. example of it, kind of just being just muddying everything up and. And we get really lost in it and it's hard to see what's actually going on. Yeah. And speaking about that pause, uh, St. Peter Gray has a great article on learning to read without being taught to read. Yeah. And the range is, I would say the range is much bigger than expected at school. But is it actually much bigger since we're still schools are plagued by these poor literacy problems? But it, it could be nine, it could be 10, 12. Or my favorite anecdote is a, a, apparently about Agatha Christie. As a little girl, she was very inquisitive and uh, her mum didn't want her to learn to read because then she would have to rearrange the whole you know, family library, hide some books that weren't appropriate and all that. She didn't want all that fuss. So she told her governess that she was not to teach Lily Agatha to read and she was actually to prevent her mm. from learning to read. And then when Agatha was six, her mom caught her reading and demanded of the governess what's happening here. And the governor said, I, I stopped her as much as I could, but she just learned. <laughs> what could I do? So it, and it's also very, a very Montessori idea of sensitive periods for, for things. For, so at first it's motor skills that children go and try to stop a toddler who wants to walk from walking. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're unstoppable. They're forced. And then there's um, a sensitive period for math that starts at about uh, three or four when they start counting everything. And this is when this, uh, when they go and discover the math materials in the, in the Montessori classroom and the reading and everything has its own uh, sensitive period. And a child just, it's self-directed, it's an autonomous. They don't care for any rewards. Yeah. But the sad thing I find that happens to Montessori schools because Montessori education has such a great reputation. Parents tend to send children there 
expecting them to excel. And of course, Montessori uh, schools are often private, so they're the paying clients expecting certain things as fast as possible. We're not here to wait. We want our value for money. And suddenly the Montessori schools are under pressure to push again reading and math and yeah, you compromises, get up, it, yeah. compromises it. And yeah, Montessori uh, said uh, the, the job of a teacher is to observe, just to sit back and observe the children for two to three hours a day. Can you imagine that yeah. in our... <laughs> You know, a world. And that's patience. That's a big thing, I think. That's something that the reward system doesn't have, patience. And also it gives the message uh, maybe that, you know, this that you need help to do this. This is the help that you need to, to do it. So maybe it belittles the, what you can actually do. You know, it's always like, well, you did this because of the rewards. Yes. Yeah. Maybe you wouldn't have done it without. So it just exactly. for me it just muddles everything muddles everything and the way i mean so you said um i think you mentioned with montessori things that need to be meaningful as well and that would be maybe an easy way to sum up um the rewards it lo makes learning lose its meaning yes the rewards it, cha it's it changes anymore. the meaning it's, for it. yeah. it's earning it's earning it's work it's a completely different kind of work and there's a trade-off to that the value is you might get results quicker and it might look good on graphs, but if, if is that what's good enough for us? And I think it, that might be the temptation because if we introduce rewards and punishments, this is sort of a model of earning. Mm. This is the model of how paid work works. But even with that, even with, with adults, the motivation, of the, the studies in motivation like damping uh, show that there's a plateau after which more financial reward is just not working. Yeah. Once you once you have sort of enough, and that enough is surprisingly not not that not much. much. You yeah. know, <laughs> once you have enough, you you are motivated by uh, I think what is it autonomy, mastery, purpose, damping, yeah, cold drive, yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to our episode all about rewards and punishments. If you like the podcast, give it, give us a share, copy the link, and send it out to your friends, family, people you know look out, looking after children. And stay tuned for more about what we'll be setting up here at the Caring Instinct. Thanks again. Bye.